take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at the entire book, so I, I won't read it all this morning. But if you would have your Bibles open as we go through this, that would be uh, most helpful this morning. Uh, before we do, let me pray for us once again. Oh Lord, we're so uh, excited and so thankful, Lord, that we could have your word open to us once again, that we could hear the words of life. Lord, we pray that, that you would speak to us right where we're at, uh, whatever our condition is, whatever our, our relationship with you is, we pray that you would speak into our lives the word of truth. And then we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts to receive those words by faith and to trust you and to respond accordingly, Lord. Because God, what we want more than anything is that you would be glorified. And so Father, we pray that you would take the words that are spoken this morning. May they not be the mere words of men, but may they be the word of God proclaimed faithfully uh, to your people and to those that do not know you. We pray in your name. Amen. As I said, it's it's good to be back with you once again and uh, to be able to bring God's Word. What a, what a pleasure that is. I know many of you have walked with the Lord for, for many years and I don't know what your prayer life is exactly, but I, you know, I, I wonder if you have ever had a conversation or a prayer, something like this with God. Oh God, where are you? Why will you not answer my prayers? Lord, please help me. Help your people at this time. Oh Lord, vindicate me and your cause so that the whole world may know that I am yours. And then, in response to that prayer, there's silence. And so you continue on and you say, Oh Lord, I know that you're there. Please help me in this situation. And there is silence. Now, if you've never prayed a prayer like that, maybe never experienced that with the Lord, I, I would tell you that you will at some point in your life. Because God oftentimes works through those times for Him to reveal Himself to us, even in those dark times, even in the calamities of life, so that we might know Him in a way that, that we don't know Him at other times in the Christian life. It's just part of what it means to walk with the Lord. You see, God works out His purposes in ways that we don't understand according to His sovereign decree. And what I mean by that is, is that His will is being accomplished according to His great wisdom and His divine insight. You see, we can't see things as clearly as we think we can as finite human beings. I know we think a lot of ourselves, we feel pretty confident sometimes in the things that we can do, and yet we have limitations as finite creatures, and yet God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the difference between right and wrong, and He is good. And, and if you don't believe me, I would encourage you to look at creation. And, and not just the world that is out there, the trees and the grass and all those things, it's gorgeous. I mean, you go out... And look at a Kansas night, look at the sky, and it's just amazing. And you can see the goodness of God. You know, I know we live in a fallen world, and, and there's a lot that comes with that. A lot of pain, and a lot of hurt, 
But, but even in the midst of living in a fallen world, God's creation is still beautiful. You know, I think it's interesting. This week I was sort of contemplating and I thought, you know, God could have put us in a post-apocalyptic world where there was barely enough to eat, where it was the bare minimum scorched earth, and yet God didn't choose to do that. He chose to give us beauty. He, he chose to give us music. He chose to give us art. He chose to give us relationships with one another to love others and to be loved by them. And so you see God's goodness in his creation. But, but you see God in no place more clearly than when you see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. That God would love us so much that he would come to earth and he would die. He would, he would suffer. He, he would be put to shame so that he might purchase a people for himself. So that we, brothers and sisters, might have a relationship with God. Not just now, but for all eternity. That one day that we could stand before him face to face in his presence and do what we're doing this morning, but so much better. Amen? And what a glorious day that will be to worship Him. And it is this good God who is answering our prayers even when He appears to be silent. <coughs> now, I think it's interesting that God in His wisdom uh, sort of made our human relationships reflect what our relationship is like with Him. Uh, let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. You may be a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent and you have children in your life and maybe one of those children whom you love so, 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 so much has gotten a splinter in their finger. And, and so, you know, you get the tweezers out because you know that if you leave that splinter in their finger that it's going to get infected and that's not going to be good. As a matter of fact, that could very severely affect their health. And you know that just taking those, those tweezers, even though it could be sort of painful to get that splinter out, you're willing to do that because you love that child so much. And so you take that child's hand in your hand, and you take the tweezers in the other hand, and they're pulling back from you going, No! No, don't hurt me! It's going to hurt! And what do you do? You say, Well, yeah, I don't want to hurt you. No! You... You say, I love you so much, and I know this is going to hurt, but the, you need this. This is what's good for you. And so you take those tweezers, and you pull that splinter out, and they're crying, and, and you know, they, they, you, they're acting as if you're cutting their finger off, you know, and stuff. But you do it anyway, and you love them. And maybe even afterwards, maybe because you had to go a little bit deeper to get that splinter because it was down there so far that it hurt a little bit more. And so they pulled back. But you know what? You do that. Because you love them. And that's just a, a tiny, tiny, minuscule example of the great love that God has for us. And, and how much His love sometimes takes us through those difficult places in our lives. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, in the same way we might say to that child, Hold still. Hold still. I love you. Just trust me. Just trust me. In the same way, God says that to us in, in times in our lives. And sometimes God answers our prayers not only in a way that we don't understand, but he does so in silence. And yet we can be assured that even though God appears to be silent, that he is answering the prayers of his people. And no matter how many or how things may seem 
from our perspective, we should continue to pray to the God of grace and to enter into a dialogue with the living God. And that's what we see here in the book of Habakkuk. Here is, is a prophet of God. Now, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. I mean, basically what we do know about Habakkuk is his name. That's about it. You know, there's apocryphal books that, you know, sort of hypothesize what, you know, what tribe he was from or things like that. But all of those things are just conjecture. Uh, but we do know that his name, and like I said, that's about it. But one thing we do learn about Habakkuk in, in this book is a little bit of his personality, which with some of the minor prophets, they are pretty much just a proclamation of whatever the prophecy is that they are recording. But but here in Habakkuk, we see sort of a back and forth with God where he's praying to God and God is revealing his word to Habakkuk and then Habakkuk responds to that. And, and what we see in this man is, is that he's not so unlike us uh, as we will see as we look at this book this morning. Um, but his message is to believe to become during the time of Josiah's son's reign, Jehoiakim. Now I'll talk about him in just a little bit, but before I talk about what was happening in the immediate context of Judah at that time, let's look at what was happening internationally. Assyria, one of the superpowers, you know, uh, there's several superpowers that we see in the Old Testament. You know, one of them is Egypt down here, and then you have Assyria that's up here, and sort of in between those two is Judah. Well, uh, Assyria was in the process of decline. They were being conquered by this major, major superpower that was coming, that was rising up, named the Chaldeans, or another name for that is the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians were coming and they were conquering Assyria. They, the, the nation had not yet completely fallen, but this was probably 605 to 600 BC. And if you remember, whenever you're talking about BC, it's sort of like negative numbers in math class, right? You know, uh, and uh, the, it's sort of backwards. You go from 605, 600 is later than 605. You know, it's sort of that kind of thing. But uh, 605 to 600 BC is the time frame. About seven years before that, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, had fallen. And, uh, and now Egypt is coming to the aid of Assyria, hoping to stop this wicked uh, power of Babylon that is spreading around the globe. Well, by 605, the great superpowers of Assyria and Egypt both have been defeated by Babylon. And so Habakkuk is overwhelmed by the situation in which he lives. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. There's, there's terrible anarchy in the world, violence, merciless reign of terror that is, is going on. And so all of that's happening uh, internationally uh, between the nations. And then locally, uh, where he lives, uh, the Jehoiakim is the one who is reigning over Judah. Now, if you would, turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 22. And Jeremiah is a contemporary of Habakkuk. And he describes Josiah's son, Jehoiakim and what kind of king he was like. Jeremiah 22, verse 18, we read these words. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. 
with the burial of a donkey he shall be buried. Do you hear what he's saying? That the king over Judah is to be buried like a donkey. Okay, which obviously was not very complimentary. Dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. You see, the Lord spoke to Jehoiakim and he would not listen. He said, this has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. And so while Josiah, the, the child king, you remember? Kids, you probably studied that in Sunday school. Uh, Josiah, the, the child king, was really a good king, a godly king. He was the one who found the word of the Lord, the book of the law. And he said, we need to live by this. And he began to read it and to implement it in his kingdom. There was sort of like a mini reformation that happened in Israel at that time. But his son was wicked, and he let, let God's people astray. And so in Judah in this time was a lack of faith and a lack of dependence upon God. Uh, a lot of worldliness that was occurring at this time, and really a functional deism that, that uh, characterized even the nation of God. And this is right before the exile, maybe a generation or so before the exile. And God has been sending his prophets for quite some time to warn God's people. I mean, God had been sending his prophets for so long that Habakkuk feels the weight of how long God has been saying that he will judge his people. He's like, Lord, you keep saying this, but, but it's not happening. Now, Habakkuk is the eighth of 12 minor prophets, so this is probably two to 300 years into prophetic history that we see uh, here. Now, imagine if I could give you a sort of what that would be like is it would be like if at the beginning of the formation of our country in the United States of America that God began to send prophets periodically to proclaim the judgment of God upon America if it did not repent of its sins. And from the day that our country started to today, that would be about the length of time that, that Israel had been receiving these prophets. So you can imagine... You know, my grandfather had heard these prophets. My father had heard these prophets. I am now hearing these prophets. And nothing. Nothing from the Lord. And so Habakkuk was struggling with God's silence regarding this promise. And Habakkuk, like many of us, would be thinking, God, are you going to actually do what you say that you're going to do? Because it doesn't seem like you're going to do anything. So you can imagine why people would not listen to the word of the Lord. And so in light of the, the prophet uh, of all of this, the, the prophet Habakkuk cries out to the Lord in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Oh, or, 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 or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Or that's sin, kids, okay? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You see, Habakkuk sees wickedness both locally and internationally. And he wonders where God is in all of this. Well, in verses 5 through 11, 
the Lord says, I am raising up Babylon in judgment against my people. And at first glance, what we see Habakkuk doing in his prophetic laments um, in verses uh, 2 through 4 and 12 through 17 is questioning God's righteousness, his goodness. He's saying, how could a good God use such unrighteous people to accomplish his purpose? You know, although Judah was evil and acting unrighteously, at least in Habakkuk's mind, he's like Babylon's evil and unrighteousness far outweighs Judah's uh, on a scale of justice and righteousness. You see, for Habakkuk, the cure for sin in Judah was far worse than the disease. And so he couldn't understand the calamity that the Lord was bringing upon his people. And let me just say this for us this morning. We may not have enemies uh, hearkening at our borders waiting to cross and to come and to wipe us out. But sometimes do we not wrestle with the same thing? Do we not sometimes question how can a good God use such awful circumstances in our lives? God, what good could come of this as we walk through those deep waters that the Lord brings into our lives. However, God would use the more evil and unrighteous people to make Judah more righteous uh, by cleansing them, by purifying them, disciplining them, bringing his judgment. You see, God had been bringing his prophets to his people to, to turn their hearts back to the Lord, but they would not listen. And so God says, I love you so much, and that splinter is so deep that I'm willing to go to whatever depths to draw your heart back to mine, that I will even use a wicked nation like Babylon to turn your heart back to me. So judgment begins with the house of the Lord. You see, in the midst of, of the painful situations in our lives, God is at work. Habakkuk's prophecy would be uh, a written prophecy we read, uh, so as to, to remind us, because we all struggle at some point in time with the decisions that God makes and the circumstances that he brings into our lives. And so we question, God, what are you doing? God, are you good? And so the Lord tells Habakkuk, write this down, not just for them, but for us as well. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, uh, or at least verse 2. And, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. No matter how things might seem, God wants to remind his people that he is faithful. And as, as we follow this conversation between Habakkuk and God, Habakkuk will talk a lot about what it means to wait upon the Lord. Go back and, and read this book this afternoon, if you would. And, and you'll see that there was not much righteousness in Judah, and there certainly was no righteousness in Babylon. But the righteousness, the justice, the hope that Habakkuk longed for, God would provide in a most unexpected way. But in fact, that righteousness and that justice does not come through us, through human beings. Even in the best of society, uh, we are wicked, are we not, as human beings? Uh, rather, God's righteousness comes only through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that, that we can do. Because all, all mankind is like what the Lord describes in, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. If you look there, you see that he talks about uh, being puffed up before God in his soul. All that is found within sinful man is, 
is unrighteous, as we see in verse 4. Greedy for more, for more money and power and, no, and not seeking after God. We see that in verse 5. Also, Romans 3 talks about that, that there's none good. There's none who seek after God. And so how can we hope to stand in those uncertain times and wait upon the Lord when God's ways don't make sense to us, when God is silent and we must wait? But we all live in the tension between the promises that God makes and the fulfillment of those promises. We live in the tension between what God says is going to happen and what actually is happening uh, right now. And so how do we live in such circumstances? Well, let me suggest to you that when calamity comes, that we live by faith. That we live by faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now notice the contrast between the godless and the godly. Those who don't follow the Lord are proud. They're demanding from God what they want from Him. They see God as their slave, that He should do whatever they desire, not acknowledging God for who He is as Creator, or the Holy God, or the Judge of the earth. But then there's that tiny little word, three letters, but. And there's, there's a contrast there. It contrasts the arrogant with those who follow God. He calls them the righteous. That, that the word righteous there means just and righteous in conduct and character towards God. And as I said earlier, we know that none of us stand righteous before the Lord. It is only through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His atonement, that we have true righteousness. Amen. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ gave His righteousness to us as we come to Him in faith. And our sin is placed upon Him. And He paid the penalty for His people. And so that's why we as a church will be a church that will have open arms to anybody that walks in that door. We can't sit here thinking that we are better than anybody else that walks in through that door because we have no righteousness in, even in and of ourselves. It all has come from Christ. And the same hope and the same gospel message that we need to preach to ourselves each and every day is the hope that we have to offer as people walk through that door or as we go to the workplace or as we talk to our neighbors or as we love our families and we share Christ. It is That's the only hope we have is what God has done for us. And as the people of God, we wait upon the Lord so that walk, we walk by faith. And this kind of attitude is what characterizes true disciples of Christ. I mean, the quote from Habakkuk 2, that the righteous will live by faith, it's, it's repeated at least three times in the New Testament. Romans uh, 1, 7, uh, Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews 10, 37, and 38. Because even though Christ has come, we still await the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. So we still, even as New Testament Christians, are people who are walking by faith, trusting God's promises. 
And so those who have been saved in Christ live by faith, not just saying this is what I believe in theory, but a sense of understanding what it is that we believe and walking in that way, in the way we live, uh, in practice, in the face of the uncertain circumstances in our lives, in the face of the reality that the Babylonians are coming, and those things that we don't understand about God and the ways that He is at work, we trust Him and walk by faith. Now, I, I want to say something because I think oftentimes when people hear you walk by faith, it's just like, okay, let's just suck it up and let's, you know, let's do better. But, you know, let's look at Habakkuk for a moment, okay? Habakkuk was someone who struggled in his faith. If you look at chapter 1, verse 4, you see that. Habakkuk prays what he does, um, and, and he prays in a way, not to, to be arrogant, not a, in a way to try to trap God or to <coughs> accuse God, but as an act of faith. And even though Habakkuk has a weakness of faith here, yet the fact that he's praying is an evidence of faith. And, and same way with Job. Job, who was uh, facing the difficulties of his life, he asked questions of God, seeking answers from the Lord. The psalmist does the same thing. Uh, the different writers of the song, they, they deal with the turmoil in their life. Maybe it's the enemies, maybe it's circumstances, maybe it's trials, and all these things. And the psalmist will say things like Psalm 13:1, How long, O Lord, will you forget forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or Abraham, who almost argues with God when he intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, there's times, there will be times in our life where God works in such a way that it will test our faith. And it will show us maybe that our faith is weak. And, and, and there will be times when we will have questions from God. We will maybe struggle with doubts. And as we do that, we just need to keep a couple of things in mind. Because there's some dangers that we can fall into. The first thing, uh, the danger that we might fall into is to think that this is God... So don't ask questions. This is God, so don't ask questions. Just be quiet and trust Him and never seek an answer. And so sometimes as Christians, what we do is we're wrestling in our faith. If we buy into this idea, you know, then we may be struggling with the things that God is doing in our lives. And yet as other believers come and say, hey, how are you doing? We go, oh, I'm good, I'm good. But yet it's tearing us up. And we're struggling. And we feel like we have to put on this false face of righteousness before our brothers and sisters so that they don't see the true struggle that we're having. But, but as I said earlier, if you look at Habakkuk and Job and the psalmist and Abraham, and even Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, Father, would you take this cup from me? And yes, he says, not my will, but your will. But he is crying out to God. And all of these godly men, they seriously wanted to understand God's actions. And, and while not perfectly, except for Christ, who was perfect, they wanted to understand what God was doing. And so they cried out to him. So that's okay to do that. But we do need to be careful not to fall into the other danger. And that is that and when we do ask God questions, to do it in a way that is demanding to do it in a way that, that exalts ourselves over God as if he needs to answer to me 
because I need to know what's happening and you owe this to me. And we look at ourselves as, as above God. Maybe that's out of despair. Maybe it's out of anger or some other wrong motives. Um, I, I had uh, one person who uh, is uh, of a younger generation, like the age of, of many of you that are here today, and they made the comment to me. They said, you know, the younger generation can pride itself that it values authenticity, doubting, and questioning, almost as if in all of these things they are a virtue. And so I think we have to be careful you know, as we come to the Lord, that we do so with humility to really truly seek to understand. And it's not just the younger generation. The reality is any of us and all of us struggle with this when we question God. But we must not do so sinfully, but instead willing, fully submissive to Him. Now, I think what's so helpful here is to see what Habakkuk does uh, as he interacts with God. He is working through all of these things that God is revealing to him in prayer and seeking the word of the Lord. And, and what will keep us grounded in times of calamity and uncertainty is as we come to God honestly, crying out to him, but with an open Bible, reading his word and meditating on it, not just knowing God's word in a general way, but tying ourselves to specific promises and knowing specifically who God is and how he works and, and, and having this, this conversation with the Lord where we are listening to him in his word and then we are responding to him. Maybe sometimes it is questions. Maybe sometimes it is, Lord, I'm struggling. Lord, I need your help. You know, I mean, even the psalmist says, Lord, my feet almost slipped. As I looked at the, the wicked and I saw how they're prospering. And then I came in to the house of the Lord. And I was reminded of who you are. And my feet were steadfast. You see, chapter 1 shows us that our faith can be weak. Like Habakkuk. You know, he's, he's wrestling. Chapter 2, we see, I think, a stronger faith. Habakkuk's trying to square what he sees in the world with God's revelation. How can God crush his people? And how could he use such a wicked people to do that? But, but notice that Habakkuk doesn't, while he doesn't like the circumstances that God has revealed about using the Babylonians, yet in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he doesn't walk away and say, well, that's not my God. I don't believe in a God who would use the Babylonians or such a wicked people to correct his people. Habakkuk raises his complaint against the Lord. He, he prays to God and he asks these questions. And then he says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. You see, Habakkuk is very intentionally uh, watchful to see what God would say. He's looking for the word of the Lord. He's, he's walking by faith, not by sight. Now that doesn't mean that he ignores everything that he experiences in his life. But he also recognizes that there is more to his experience than what he just picks up with his five senses. That God works in a way that our five senses don't always perceive. 
And so he recognizes that God not only exists, but he is at work maybe in ways that he can't see or hear or taste or smell or touch. And he puts his faith in the Lord. Now, I think sometimes even as Christians, we can mistakenly think that God is at work only if he gives us what we want. Have you ever fallen into that trap? If some circumstance happens in your life and it's pleasing to you, you say, wow, the Lord's working in my life in this way, right? But what happens if some trial or some difficulty or, or you're, you're, you're frustrated in your desires and the things you want, you say, wow, Satan's really working in my life, right? But sometimes God works to oppose our desires too because he loves us. And, and I think we see in chapter 3, as you look at Habakkuk and especially his response to God's revelation in, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, a more mature faith. Uh, if you would look at chapter 3, uh, verse 17, you, you see a sense where Habakkuk submits to God's will. He said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then there's an interesting note. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. He made this a song so he wouldn't forget And so we see when calamity comes, we are to walk by faith. We, but second of all, we are to live in hope. Uh, verse 14. Well, before you look at verse 14, look at verses 2 and 3 again. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, God says, look, you, you, I know you've been waiting a long time for this to come about. It will happen, but it will come at its, at its appointed time. You see, as we walk by faith, we do so as a people who have hope. You see, the fulfillment of God's promises may seem slow, and they may seem uncertain to us at times, but he will do what he says. Look what he says in, in verse 3. He will surely do it. It's not, well, you know, 99% chance, 99.9% .9 chance. He will surely do it. We may not always understand why God fulfills his promises when he does, but there is a time for everything. We read that in the book of Ecclesiastes, but do we believe that? I mean, he says here that this vision awaits its appointed time. There is a perfect time for God to do what he promises. God's not guessing when will be the right time to do something. He knows precisely when he needs to do it. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, um, God tells what he's promising here. God gives five declarations of woe to those who will judge his people, the Babylonians. Um, he says, one day God will judge the Babylonians for what they do to Israel. 
One day, all injustices will be made right at the final judgment. Uh, the circumstances that God's people find themselves in are just temporary. Likewise, the situation that God's enemies are in is temporary as well. One day there will be this reversal. And, and, and currently the Babylonians are exalted and glorified. And God's people are suffering and, and, and under condemnation. But there will become a day when all of that will reverse. And in that day, the exaltation and the glory of God's people won't just be for a while. It will be for eternity. And likewise, the suffering and the condemnation of God's enemies will be forever with no end. See, look at verse 14. What a wonderful verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just go look at the ocean and just see how vast that is. And you can see that, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. What a, a, a wonderful promise of salvation and hope. Unlike now, there will be a day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. Not just a head knowledge, not just an intellectual knowledge of God. That word knowledge there in the Hebrew it really has the connotation of a relationship. Like for a husband and a wife, where a husband knows his wife. He knows her intimately, right? There's a relationship there. And in the same way, this knowledge is a sense of a relationship with God. To know God is to be in a right relationship with Him. And one day, that's what the earth will be like. Today, we look at our world. I'm, we're hearing sirens right now, right? In the background. Something's wrong. You know, there's, there's always uh, the effects of sin everywhere we turn. But one day, that will all be gone. And there will be peace. Sin will be no more. The righteous person will be exalted rather than suffer. And we read here that the glory or, or God's manifest presence will be experienced among his people. And then, and then see how he closes this chapter in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You see, what can we say in the presence of a holy and a perfect God? God is the, it's this God who controls the circumstances of our lives. And he doesn't bring anything into our lives that is not for our good. So when calamity comes, we walk in by faith, we, we live in hope, but we also have joy. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, we've already read verse 17 and the circumstances that are there. And that's the result of the devastation caused by the invading Chaldean army and also the consequences of God's people's sin uh, that's causing this suffering in all of Judah. But, but notice what the Lord does here. The devastation that is about to happen on Judah will touch every aspect of their life. As God brings this into the lives of his people, he does so because he wants to touch them at the very core of who they are, that he might turn their hearts back to him. The fig, the primary staple food, also symbolic of wealth and prosperity. The fruit vine in verse 17, uh, that's where they got their wine. It was where they did their celebrations. It was symbolic of joy. The olive oil was, was pressed three times, used for anointing in the temple for for their lights, 
you know, to, to burn the lights for medical purposes, also symbolic of God's covenant blessing. Fields yield no fruit. Most likely he's speaking of bread and the grain that, that is there, uh, reminding them of God's provision of manna in the wilderness. The flock will be cut off from the fold. The animals will be scattered to the wild. Uh, future herds will be vulnerable to predators and to thieves. Herd in the stall means there will be no meat for them to eat, no animal sacrifice for them to make to the Lord. So there's all these things that will affect every aspect of their life. And yet here again we see a three-letter word. Not but, but yet. Here again, a term of contrast, a, a change of direction. That may be the circumstances in Habakkuk's life, in the life of God's people. And yet Habakkuk said, yet I will rejoice. He moves from describing devastation to a declaration of joy. I will rejoice. This declaration is, is the prophet's choice, even in the face of coming judgment. This is not a form of self-help or mind-over-matter type of, of thinking. It is God working in the mind and the hearts of his beloved to give Habakkuk the capacity to rejoice in the face of calamity. It is a gift of God to have joy in the Lord. And he goes on and he says, I will take joy. I like the way one person put it. They said, joy is the flag that is flown from the citadel of the heart when the king is in residence. Let me read that again. Joy is the flag that is flown from the citadel of the heart when the king is in residence. When Christ is our king, when we are looking to him, like what Chris talked about in Sunday school, where we have set our will upon him to do what he commands us, because we know that he is good. When we do that, then joy is the result of that. Joy is the flag that, that flies over our lives. Joy is the fruit of a right relationship with God, regardless of the circumstances one faces. You see, un unlike pleasure and enjoyment, joy is not created by one's own efforts, but it's something that's given to us by God. And then he goes on and he says, God the Lord is my strength. Now, how is the prophet to be able to choose to rejoice and to fly the flag of joy in his life? Well, because his life is anchored in God, the Lord, who is his strength. Now, God didn't transfer some supernatural strength to Habakkuk. Rather, God himself became Habakkuk's strength. We need to hear that, brothers and sisters. Especially if you're walking through the deep waters in your life. You're walking through those times of calamity, those times of difficulty. And you may be thinking, how can I get control of my life? How can I somehow gain some kind of strength to endure? And I'm here to tell you, you can't. Nor should you try. It's okay to be weak, but you must look to your God who is your strength. That's where your strength comes from. To look to Him each and every day. As we, as we close, if you would, turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. You know, this is a message. It's, it's not just to Old Testament Christians. We, 
we see the same thing in the New Testament as well. And we know that, that the believers that, that Paul or whoever you think wrote the book of Hebrews uh, was writing to, that they had suffered most difficult things. And, and we read about that in Hebrews 10.32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but here again, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and pres um, preserve their souls. Now, then the writer goes on in chapter 11, and he talks about that faith. And he describes it. He said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he begins to unpack that and show how the saints of old, how the saints in the New Testament walked by faith and what that looked like. And he even carries that theme over to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you look there, he said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what is our confidence Look at back at verse 35. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, this is where we live as Christians, where many of our brothers and sisters live who are enduring hard struggles and sufferings around the world. That their hope is to walk by faith in the promises of God, knowing that it is His Spirit that works in us uh, to do so. Brothers and sisters, you, you have fellowship with Christians all around the world who are suffering for their faith, trials, calamity, persecutions, death. Some have lost loved ones. Some have lost their husbands. Some have lost their children or their wives. Maybe they're pastors who preach the word of God. And now there's a whole church of people without a pastor. How, how, how do they keep from crumbling under such persecution? They are carried through faith in God and his promises. Carried through faith in God and his promises. If you look back at Habakkuk 3 verses 1 through 16. You can do that this afternoon. You'll see that Habakkuk knew specifically who God is. And what he had done. And that's why he could say 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Because his faith was in the God that he knew and his promise, which gave him a confidence in the hope that he has. For us, it's the hope that we have in Christ, which then gives us a countenance of joy. So we are carried through faith. We have confidence in the hope, which then gives us a countenance of joy. Amen. Let's bow our heads uh, and just meditate upon God's word. Take a moment and just silently pray to the Lord and respond to his word, which you have heard this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you've given to us today. Thank you, God, that you had Habakkuk write this down so that we could go back and we could read it because we struggle sometimes, God, to know why you do what you do sometimes, to, to really uh, wrestle with God sometimes the circumstances that you bring into our lives. Oh, but we thank you for the word of encouragement. And just pray for those, Lord, who are walking through difficult times this morning. Those maybe who are, are here uh, suffering silently. It, it could be any number of things. It could be health issues. could be uh, circumstances that are they're going through, whatever. We pray, God, that you would encourage your people with your word today. And, and I pray, Lord, for those that, that may be listening to my voice that, that don't know you. And maybe they have to say, I don't have such peace. I don't think I could do that. Which is true, because none of us can apart from you. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that this hope is for them as well. That if they just repent of their sins and turn their heart over to you, that you are a God who is gracious to forgive and to give them a new nature to make them new creations in Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for these things. And we pray them in your name. Amen.